Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second Twitter Spaces uh, following the publication of our latest Open Metaverse thesis. Just a bit of context on the thesis to start with a little bit. The thesis is a follow-up to our landmark Open Metaverse thesis in 2021, which redefined the way that the Web3 industry views openness and the future of Web3 and largely set our vision as a company and, and to an extent as an industry as well uh, in looking to the future and supercharging our uh, Web3 Accelerator, which is now the number one uh, Web3 Accelerator globally. We had a couple of weeks ago a Twitter Spaces that um, discussed the first half of the thesis, which was the challenges, the threats uh, to the open metaverse that we're seeing in the Web3 landscape today. Um, and as a follow-on, we wanted to not leave you all on a you know dire note, but we wanted to kind of assess the current landscape and understand the opportunities and challenges that Web3 has and look forward towards what that metaverse could look like. Uh, so the way this is going to go down is I'm going to quickly uh, let everybody introduce themselves. And then our CEO and founder, Jamie Burke, is going to kind of largely take over and host, lead the discussion. Uh, and I'll be chiming in a little bit for context just to kind of uh, steer the discussion a little bit. So I'll let everybody introduce themselves, starting with Jamie. Hey, everybody. Thanks, Martin. So we've got several people from across Outlier, some of our subject matter experts, as well as what we call PMs, those that work directly with founders on specific uh, acceleration programs. Each will bring a slightly different perspective or area of domain expertise to um, to the debate. Um, hopefully, if we get a bit of time later, we can also open up for questions. So um, if people have a question, maybe drop it in the chat and Martin can try and feed those into the, into the discussion as we go. So as Martin said at the top end, this is the kind of second uh, Twitter spaces for our latest uh, thesis update, which is called the Open Metaverse Under Attack. This second part is very much going to be talking about the, the fight back, what we're calling the fight back, the opportunities and innovations in Web3 that make us more optimistic for the space. But maybe as a quick recap as to um, the first session. So it's our belief since we wrote the paper back in 21, which is called the Open Metaverse OS, how Web3 provided an operating system for a more open metaverse, that the concept principle and kind of practical execution of the open metaverse um, is is under direct threat either by decisions shortcuts um, being made by people wanting to adopt the technology be that founders um, or kind of large enterprise as well as uh, some of the kind of direct attacks that we're seeing in a regulatory sense either as a consequence of a misunderstanding uh, of the opportunity or uh, more as a direct kind of affront to its principles. So we're not going to spend too much time talking about the former. I recommend you can find that previous recording on the OVO IOHQ uh, channel, this account that you're listening to now. Today, we're going to focus much more on the, the opportunity. So there are kind of several areas where we believe there is um, opportunity in the open metaverse based upon market trends that we're seeing, as well as emergent themes that are kind of running through our accelerator. We are working with hundreds 
of Web3 startups um, each year. Uh, and to do that, we speak to many thousands. So in the last quarter, we invested in just 1% of all applications. And that still makes us one of the most active investors in the space. So we just see a lot of startups. We talk to them about their business models, their technical decisions, and their approaches to governance. And that helps uh, give us um, a shape for how we see things emerging and in aggregate some of the impacts on the wider industry. So some of the areas that we're going to be discussing today are around what we call composable creativity and that's for extending the benefits of composability in Web3 beyond DeFi to uh, in particular the creative industries. We're going to be looking at the innovations around zero knowledge. We launched our first zero knowledge dedicated cohort program um, back in Q1. And we'll be talking about um, some of the exciting things that we're seeing happening there. Um, that will be Elliot. With uh, ReFi, we have Laura talking about um, our thinking around what we call MetaFi, but what's widely understood as ReFi, um, renewable finance, and how... Uh, Web3 can have a, a real impact on the world and financial inclusion. Um, Thomas will be talking about NFTs and royalties. Um, and then Rhiannon, probably myself, will be talking about agent-based systems, how we go beyond AI today, leveraging Web3 both as a trust machine, um, but also as a way to coordinate um, agent-based systems to deliver something um, akin to generalized intelligence, something that feels like generalized intelligence. Um, as we go through each of these sections, uh, I'll invite each person to kind of int first introduce themselves uh, and then um, give some high-level thoughts on some of their thinking. Martin um, will hold us to account on time. We've got a lot to get through in a relatively limited period of time. Um, so uh, I'm sure he'll kind of... Uh, keep reminding me where we're at. And as I said, any questions for those that have just joined, um, ask in, in the comment piece, and Martin will try to feed those into conversations at the appropriate point. So I'll kick off. I'll start with some of the thinking around composable creativity uh, and its impact on the new creator economy. So when most people think of Web3 and composability, they think, of course, of DeFi. The idea that by people developing fairly simple primitives and smart contracts that might provide a kind of feature or function that these in aggregate can be combined to deliver something equivalent to a financial service. The key thing being that each one of these constituent parts is interchangeable. So there's there's limited dependency upon any one element, but also as a developer, as an entrepreneur, as a creator, you can combine um, these things in, in various um, combinations as you see fit relative to uh, what you're trying to achieve. And I think this offers a huge potential, especially when we begin to think about generative AI and, and how that's been using, being used, which of course brings its own form of composability as well. So what I mean by that is we can already see composability uh, in AI and in generative AI in that most of it is to a degree, open source, or at least um, its APIs can be uh, used relatively freely, um, although many are sadly still permissioned, i.e. access and permissions can be revoked by a single platform. That said, the general principle is that you can stack these various forms of AI and AI models to deliver an outcome um, in some total which is better than any of its individual parts. So I'm sure by now everybody here has probably already seen 
people create a script uh, by leveraging chat GPT, um, feeding that into um, a voice generator, which is then also fed into something that can produce a visual form of multimedia. Um, and in combination can, uh, in its most extreme form, uh, say, create, uh, entirely create a 2D click and play game. And we actually had somebody on the podcast, um, the Metaverse podcast the other day, who's done exactly that by using purely uh, different forms of AI have produced a game equivalent to kind of a 90s click and click and play 2D game like Monkey Island. Uh, and this is a game developer that has 25 years plus um, in experience in producing games. Um, and when asked what he needed somebody else to do to create that, he said pretty much nothing other than to share in the experience of creating that game. So, of course, that's already exciting and promises to dramatically cut down the time it takes to produce a game or any other form of entertainment remembering that the production process for um, game development AAA um, game development or hollywood studio is about the same now it takes three to four years hundreds of people uh, and tens to hundreds of millions of pounds it's incredibly risky and it's effectively this industrial process that isn't very good at reusing the assets it makes so the thing that we propose in the paper is this idea that if you look at some of the examples in our portfolio of startups that have been looking to leverage NFT technologies or create middleware um, that can allow every element that's used in a game, created in a game engine, be that Unity or Unreal, or in any other kind of media format where every fragment effectively can be turned into an element, an NFT, um, which itself can have a series of other NFTs nested inside it. What it means is, is that every time a new component is made by a person or a derivative work is made by some form of generative AI, that that can be an NFT, that it can be reused, recombined, entirely new scene or game, that in aggregate um, that can dramatically both reduce the time it takes to create either form of media. Um, it can also make sure that royalties are paid to the people that are kind of creating the initial underlying building blocks of these games or have existing IP that they want to make available. And so we believe we're already seeing this trend happen in AI, but when combined with Web3, what that means is um, there's an economic incentive for people to contribute, make available libraries of content um, as NFTs. And we believe that will fundamentally change um, the nature of media and shift away from what is currently mass media into something that can be uh, much more personalized. And the example Jamie. of those games that we have are um, Crucible, which is the cross-game engine assets, and Fragnova, um, which allows for kind of AI generative um, forms of NFTs. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that, Jamie. Uh, and, and while we're talking about, you know, the, the ownership of those assets and, and talking about, you know, the role of NFTs and, and composable creativity, that, that's an interesting segue into maybe addressing some of the privacy questions associated with AI. So could you maybe speak uh, a little bit about kind of the concerns um, around that? And maybe that's a good segue into the way that, you know, ZK Technologies might offer a solution. The kind of framework that I would use is it's more of an opportunity. So if I as a user, as um, a user player in a game or an audience member watching some, you know, a, a movie, if I can trust 
the generative AI tool that I'm using to personalize content for me, whereby myself and my metadata or my social graph or my kind of consumption behaviors are in themselves prompts, then that can mean content can be personalized down to the individual. So you could imagine that um, there will kind of be this base form of media, but that it interacts at the point of consumption with the user where the objects, characters, etc., in it are personalized. For example, if it's a horror movie, it will know the things that terrify me the most, um, and it will make sure that um, the kind of things that are represented represent my nightmares, effectively, um, to kind of give a, a slightly more kind of scary example. So I would say it's an opportunity. If we can solve for privacy, where the user can be sure um, that they can you know, share their their data as prompt, then actually we can move away from mass media to personalized media. But you're absolutely right. How we get there is most likely through zero-knowledge technology, where effectively we can share underlying data about ourselves to influence the media that's generated without necessarily handing over that data to a platform or, or necessarily revealing that underlying data. So on the subject of zero knowledge, I'm going to invite up Elliot. Elliot, please introduce yourself and uh, the kind of program, I guess, that you're, you're helping lead at Outlier relative to zero knowledge. Um, and then we can talk through a little bit about why you're excited about it. Yeah, so I'm the program manager for our zero knowledge base camp, our accelerative program focused on uh, teams leveraging zero knowledge proof to build applications both in the privacy side of things uh, that Jamie mentioned, but also um, on the scalability side. And as far as where, you know, the areas where, where, that we're excited about when it comes to uh, zero knowledge proofs and sort of the use cases that it unlocks, uh, I think you touched on one uh, very interesting, uh, interesting aspect of privacy whereby you could uh, influence uh, machine learning models with uh, private data. So I would be able as a user, for example, as you mentioned, to confidently share private my data, my private information, my, my data, without it being um, being revealed to uh, those models that are, that are running that data. So um, that would essentially give, give me a, a higher degree of uh, personalization without concerns that this is then going to be used in the future, you know, to to sell me something that I don't want uh, on the on the Google page. And what other areas of innovation are we seeing, kind of beyond that world of, um, you know, say media, as we look at ZK? What use cases does it make possible? I mean, there's a there's a lot of industries, value chains that simply can't use blockchain technology because of its public by default nature. But if we're able to flip web three and blockchains into private by default what does that make possible what use cases and industries does that allow us to bring on to um uh, into web three yeah so i think that a, a lot of traditional traditional businesses that that have had you know privacy concerns were not able to leverage the public blockchain networks in the past so i think one of the Biggest areas is uh, the obviously the financial sector. Uh, traditional finance, there are a lot of privacy laws around 
what information you can share. And so we're seeing increased interest from uh, TradFi players that are looking at how can they leverage zero knowledge to then um, tap into um, tap into public blockchain networks and, and their benefits. Uh, we're also seeing uh, quite a bit around the identity space. So building that digital identity, proving uh, certain attributes about yourself without having to reveal them to the entire the entire public blockchain uh, becomes a way of personalizing your experience online without having to reveal that that sensitive information. Yeah, I mean, I think identity is is a is a key area. We do highlight it in the paper that until a form of decentralized identity is is solved for at scale, um, we can't have a, a kind of true form of Web three. Um, but maybe kind of linked to this point around TradFi allows us to perhaps uh, move on into ReFi um, with Laura. So, um, Laura, could you please kind of introduce yourself and your role at Outlier? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Laura. I'm a program manager at Outlier Ventures. Specifically, I lead our Polygon program, and I'm really excited to be here today to talk about financial inclusion and the opportunities that can be generated through ReFi. So, obviously, one of the big criticisms of Web3, and in particular DeFi to date, is that it hasn't materially improved forms of financial inclusion. Of course, there is an argument that in um, economies that are kind of suffering from hyperinflation um, or where kind of confiscation, state confiscation is, is kind of more of a day-to-day -day concern, um, it's already making impact. You know, Latin America is always kind of highlighted as, as, as one region. But generally, this kind of criticism is that not only has it not impacted the lives of the average person but it still only really touched a very small percentage of even web3 users you know most assets in web3 somehow aren't aren't even staked or put to work in 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 defi um so maybe we kind of just start at, at, at that level you know what's your thinking around how we can begin to extend the benefits of you know defi defi infrastructure um, to a kind of wider user base? Of course. I think if we start by um, talking about ReFi and how is it being referred as like the next step after DeFi to, as you were mentioning, um, Jamie, kind of like expand the reach of the type of assets that we can bring in chain, on chain and that way um, create new ways of financial system includes dig digital assets in into a, the broader economic system so I'll, I'll i'd like to talk through different examples to help people also see the the benefit of what we're proposing in the thesis so for example a young gamer in Nigeria or in another part of the world can be earning in-game assets um, through hours of gaming, and they, they could have the potential to convert this digital wealth into a form that could be used in the broader econo economic system. Obviously, all of this is possible thanks to tokenization that allows us to transform these digital assets into something that 
actually has economic value value we see all of this already happening today with real war assets or rwas as they're referred to where value is given to things like for example carbon capture but i don't want to focus on that because it's a very long conversation this approach fits on what's being termed as refi also known as regenerative finance and the evolution here is that it's looking to create a positive, not only economic impact, but it's also looking at how can we include environmental and social impact into these systems. But the important question here is how can this actually create financial inclusion, inclusion which is back to, back to your initial point. So I'll give you an example. So I'm from Colombia and we can think of a community here where they could use they could tokenize their natural assets, for example, land, and use them as collaterals on a peer-to-peer -peer platform and access loans, for example, which would have been otherwise impossible to access from a bank or where they will have to pay really high interest. For example, in South America, there are countries where mortgages rates are above 20%, which is five times what it is in the UK or the US. So by giving you these numbers, you can see how this setup just continues to increase the huge gap in between the rich and the poor and how solutions like ReFi can provide people that have been on bank with real solutions and allow them to access the financial system. So there's, there's lots there, right? I think, you know, the first thing is the ability to make the intangible tangible. Um, you, you kind of talked about some examples there, both real world um, and RWAs, real world assets, but then also alluded to um, forms of value in gaming could also be extended to the creator economy, um, something we call MetaFi, um, kind of DeFi in the context of the metaverse. And I guess the overall point is that the majority of forms of wealth, especially in the context of the digital economy, are not currently recognized by the existing financial system, i.e., uh, if you were a gamer or um, you participate and influence in a creator economy, um, that that digital wealth that you have is not recognized by a bank. You couldn't go in and get a short-term loan or a mortgage. You are effectively financially excluded, and yet there are millions, billions of people on the planet that do recognize that in a peer-to-peer -peer context as a form of wealth. And so through DeFi, as long as there are other people that recognize it as a form of value and therefore collateral, um, as long as it can be translated into NFTs, then all of a sudden um, we can have global peer-to-peer -peer markets that can allow for greater levels of financial inclusion. One of the additional things that we talk about in the paper is this idea of kind of cooperatism. Digital cooperatism has been at the heart of a lot of our thinking and outlier for well, since our, um, since our genesis, so going back to 2013, 2014. Um, so the idea that you can have a fluid form of cooperatism where individuals, communities, both you know, physical and virtual communities, ad hoc or more structured, can effectively pool capital value, mutualize risk, um, mutualize insurance, um, and lend and borrow um, with peers. And so kind of huge opportunities and potential there, something we're very excited at exploring. One of those key primitives for that happening, though, of course, is NFTs. And so this is a good segue into Thomas. Thomas uh, is one of the leads within our uh, NFT function. Uh, Thomas, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thomas here, NFT Strategy Manager at Outlier. 
yeah well i'm happy to just um discuss kind of our piece of of the you know the the metaverse thesis and and threats to and and opportunities specifically with regards to nfts um leo uh, last week did a great job talking about the impact that nfts uh nft royalties had on, ha- have had on the space um in in determining kind of creator and, and consumer sentiment and essentially influencing and affecting the fibers of of the industry by you know influencing where and how people transacted um you know so so royalties are a core and defining metric of our space because of the value capture and value accrual mechanisms that nfts um allow and so i think this is a part of you know a broader topic in how the role of nfts has evolved significantly one you know from the mania of 2020 and 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 2021 to a harsh um and and very real maturation process in our industry Um, a maturation process catalyzed by a lack of innovation and you know poor macro conditions um i would say the easiest way to to understand you know the ever-evolving role of nfts um is directly seen in in community building and community capture mechanisms. I would say that um, you know in the past couple of years, NFTs because of you know the ability to capture value, um, allowing holders and and buyers and users to retain profit was an amazing way of community acquisition. When you when when macro conditions and and market saturation remove that you know value creation you know. Th- that profit seeking or that value extraction element to it um what you what you really what it really boils down to is a tool the most powerful tool for community structuring so again not no longer really the best way to um acquire a consumer base but the best way to structure it and i think that's what we're seeing now um with the with the likes of large corporations and and traditional incumbents coming into the space starbucks nike reddit i wouldn't say that these platforms are are necessarily onboarding you know millions of people into web3 but what they are doing is uh, allowing their traditional consumer base to participate in their brand um, digitally, owning low-cost, low-budget NFTs, so that they're you know they're expanding what is their traditional loyalty ecosystem. Um, you know, Nike within the past week has sold um, over a million dollars in um, their digital collectibles, which is a, which is you know. People often get confused, like, this is not Artifact. Um, obviously, Nike acquired Artifact, who was um, a leader in the NFT 3D digital space for a long time. But um, Artifact and, and Dot Swoosh, which is um, what I would consider their loyalty platform, actually exist in um, two different verticals as two complete different subsections of the Nike brand. So um, that that's a really strong signal to me that you know, Nike's core brand is embracing Web3 and and they're not just kind of pushing this digital revolution off to what is, you know, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a side brand um, or or a supporting brand like Artifact. Um, and, And we're seeing this across the board, you know, while, again, the macro conditions have not been favorable for NFTs, um, 
I'm so excited about the new brands that enter Web3 every single day. Um, like it, it, it's hard to keep up, but uh, you know whether it's Mercedes, whether it's Porsche, um, these are all brands entering the, the space on on you know on a daily basis. So the space has evolved significantly, matured, um, but we're really excited about the direction and, and really excited to see how um, NFTs from a utility stack level. Um, have improved and, and matured quite significantly. Thanks, Thomas. Um, so yeah, I mean, NFT is a huge part of the Web3 landscape. Um, and, you know, just as you were talking about a lot of companies, you know, Reddit, Starbucks, Nike, uh, Porsche, you know, starting to use NFTs, it got me thinking a little bit about kind of the future of commerce and how commercial brands are innovating and adopting new ways of um, doing um, of, of buying and selling. So maybe that's a good opportunity to talk about um, an area that we're quite bullish on. We've been, you know, bullish on from the beginning from our investments in companies like Boson Protocol in one of our first base camps, uh, e-commerce or decentralized commerce. Um, maybe, Jamie, you can talk a little bit about, you know, maybe it'd be good to start and give the audience a good definition of what e-commerce is and why it's important. And then maybe we can get into some of the applications for why we think it's so important. Yeah, specific to e-commerce, you know, we refer to e-commerce, uh, uh, decentralized commerce, as how Web3 can effectively unbundle the e-commerce platform and allow for a more uh, e-commerce e platform and can allow for a more kind of composable form of e-commerce so similar to what we were saying about DeFi um, and even composable creativity. To do that, there would have to be a equivalent service or better um, to e-commerce it is today, um, on par with something like Amazon, which of course is a um, is an extremely hard thing to do in a decentralized uh, context. You'd have to do everything from you know inventory management, um, pricing, price discovery, ad engines, all the way through to kind of final mile delivery and fulfillment. And of course, we know that um, Amazon has been loss making on its e-commerce business deliberately um, for for some time. And, and that just makes it hard to impossible for new entrants to come in and compete on price. So that is something you kind of have to acknowledge up front. That said, um, as you alluded to, Martin, we made our first investment into what we termed e-commerce um, several years ago into Boson Protocol in one of our first accelerator programs um, as we evolved from an incubator to an accelerator uh, in around 2018. Um, and they focused on this initial primitive of resolving how you can exchange something that is digital, a digital good for a physical good. That promise of fulfilling um, on on um, a transaction. Um, now, of course, that became incredibly important as the world began to kind of during COVID, post-COVID, realize the potential for the metaverse, that you could have virtual commerce experiences um, that would somehow need to be linked to or represent the physical world. And so they came up with some very complex game theoretics um, that allowed them to solve for that problem elegantly. Um, and since then, they built, uh, continue to build a number of modules of the e-commerce stack. But by now, they're by no means alone. Um, there are a number of different actors working across that e-commerce stack, um, whereby in aggregate, it could 
um, deliver something similar to an e-commerce experience. Now, initially, that might not mean that it, you're kind of looking to replace every element. There are already many trends within e-commerce where it's being unbundled. I think Shopify is a great example where an increasing number of independent stores um, are effectively using Shopify for kind of front end and then increasingly using, I think it's called um, uh, Shop, um, which is their kind of payments and fulfillment solution. Um, so initially, you can imagine some implementations of e-commerce uh, simply integrating into Shopify. So you can purchase NFTs, which represent a promise um, for a physical item that can then be redeemed either in a peer-to-peer -peer context, so without an intermediary, um, or in-store. And we're already starting to see, you know, Thomas might have talked about it a little bit earlier, um, a number of retail brands looking at uh, linking, you know, they call it fidgetals, um, into their supply chain and increasingly looking at the life cycle of a digital good that might have a physical component. And so we're already starting to see some really, really exciting innovations in this space. And with some of these kind of fundamental challenges solved now by the likes of Boson, we think this is really going to begin to catalyze. So the demand effectively is going to be coming from retailers that are going to want to integrate NFTs um, into their supply chains, either pure digital supply chains um, or their kind of digital, um, digi physical, uh, digi physical um, supply chains, um, all the way through to kind of CRM. And I think I heard Thomas mention loyalty again earlier. Um, so this is a, a huge area of innovation um, that we're beginning to see. Uh, maybe I kind of pass back to you, Martin, and, and we can talk about uh, the kind of two other remaining areas of the paper, be it agent-based systems um, with uh, Rianne, and, and then potentially, if we have time, um, going a little bit deeper into decentralized identity and the social graph. Maybe, uh, Rianne, you've you know talked, at, and, and we've talked at length, a lot about AI and the potential for decentralization, the potential for Web3, as a trust layer for AI, it's something that you know features quite heavily in the thesis as well. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of how you see AI systems evolving in a more decentralized way, um, but you know more importantly, why that's important to the development of this technology. I'm Rianne. I'm a software engineer working with the product and engineering team at Outlier, and my specific area is helping portfolio companies with uh, documentation and developer relations. And obviously, one of the things that we've been looking at a lot is AI and specifically agent-based systems. My take on this is that we have to look at decentralization from two different points. The first one is decentralization in the sense of having a multiplicity of organizations and individuals actually developing the the other aspect of it, of course, we've alluded to earlier, is using decentralized technology to bring about advances in this area. So let's break that down a bit, because I think this feeds into lots of different things. We could talk specifically about agent-based systems and how, as we say in the thesis, can, in the short to medium term, create a feeling of AGI, even though it's not necessarily real AGI in the sense that we can have an agent that represents us that subcontracts passes out to other agents. In order to do this in a 
way that we can trust. We don't want an agent going off, running a whole load of tasks on our behalf that we don't have any oversight of or that we don't really understand what they're doing on our behalf. It's just devolving too much power to them without being able to see what's going on. If you look, for example, at a company like Fetch, Fetch is a really interesting project because what they're doing is enabling all the details of these microtransactions between agents to be written into a blockchain in an immutable way so that there's an audit trail of what the agents are doing on our behalf. But really, facilitating the agent-based side of things, it's a piece of a whole which, um, as we talked about, is creative composability. What I think has been one of the really interesting factors in the whole AI piece over the last six months or so, if you look at the leaked paper from Google, which suggested that the main competition is coming from open source and individual developers rather than um, big tech, I think it's super interesting because it's sort of decentralizing itself. And we see a huge ecosystem building up around stable diffusion and so on, rather than DAO-E. I don't know, Jamie, if you want to build on that um, a little bit. So the kind of principle is this, that I guess there's two ways to look at how AI can evolve, extend, and enhance the possibility, um, how Web3 can evolve uh, the possibility and potential for AI. So the first one is something I think most people can intuitively understand which is that it's already very difficult to trust the web you know things people bots that you interact with on the web content um, and that's just got infinitely harder with ai um to the point whereby you know you could probably do almost anything now and and, and blame it on um ai um and so that's going to be a really big problem to navigate uh, and the point is is that if platforms now can leverage generative AI, if bad actors can leverage generative AI, this kind of creates an AI arms race. It's very difficult for us to, as an individual, to, to be able to compete uh, or even just navigate the web. And so um, having a sovereign AI, an AI that provably serves us and our own interests, uh, over a platform or a state or, or anybody else, an application, um, means that we can have something with the same kind of competency um, or competencies that can interact um, with other form of AI. Um, so that's the first thing. I think without forms of sovereign AI, um, individuals are at a huge disadvantage and it makes the web unusable. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that we've already seen uh, many AI models have been trained on the open web, data that's technically openly available. Um, if it's openly available for a search engine, it's been openly available for these AI models. And therefore, there's not, not been a lot of transparency around the provenance of data used to train training models, let alone making sure that the value that's then created um, when these AI models are monetized is then uh, equitably distributed to all those that contributed. So coming up with a system that can allow for attribution, provenance, um, trust, and then, of course, royalties to be paid out um, lends itself very well to Web3 to just make the AI economy and data economy 
function in a more orderly and equitable way. That's something we've been investing in for some time now, going all the way back to Ocean Protocol. Um, but we've had several years of investing on that. We're actually um, going to be upgrading our portfolio section to combine the category of AI and data so people can see the linkage between those two things. But we've got probably over 20, 25 investments in that space. Sovereign agents, kind of then a trust layer, an economic system for, for AI. But then the kind of third one is, you know, AI as it is today uh, is experienced by most people today is largely based upon these large language models, um, which entities like OpenAI have already admitted are kind of reaching their limitations. Um, so unless they can incentivize um, lots of entities uh, that have large proprietary data sets, it's going to be fairly limited at this kind of very general level, and it's not going to be able to provide specialist um, insights and advice or conversation on the full spectrum of uh, you know human knowledge. And so there needs to be some incentive mechanism whereby holders of these data sets, which are largely private or academic institutions, feel comfortable sharing it um, with a third party or, or third parties. That's most likely not going to be a single proprietary you know commercial entity. Um, is more likely going to be, you know, through kind of data marketplaces. And again, that uh, lends itself very well to things like um, Ocean Protocol, where effectively you can have initial data offerings for sets of data and where people can speculate on its future value for AI training and where AI data sets can be combined um, in a privacy-preserving way. And we've got others like Secret Network, which allow that to happen, an investment that we made several years ago. But if we want to go even beyond the potential for better training LLMs with more specialist data sets and think about how we can... Um, head towards a form of a generalized artificial intelligence, i.e. when we can interact with what feels like a singular AI and it can give us an answer on almost anything better than a human could. Um, it's our belief that that will not happen through a kind of monolithic um, a technology stack that is pr a proprietary one owned by a single corporation. At least if it is, we're a long, long way from it. And so what do we think is most likely? Well, what we think is most likely is that if you look at innovations like Fetch.ai, which is um, what Rianne mentioned a little bit earlier, they um, have applied for several years now something called agent-based systems. It's not unique to them. It's been a school of thinking within AI for you know over a decade. But the idea is, is that it's much easier um, to solve for kind of this generalized experience through lots, billions, trillions potentially of specialist agents where you might have your sovereign agent, the one that you converse with, the one that you are comfortable knowing everything about you to give highly personalized um, data sets where your metadata is, a, is effectively a prompt. You will give a task or a request to your sovereign agent and your sovereign agent will then outsource that task or break it down into its constituent parts and outsource those tasks to specialist agents um, to effectively bid on. And so a good example is travel. So I'm planning on going on a trip to Japan, family holiday um, this summer, um, two adults and a child um, in a particular 
uh, month and week um, in Japan, and we all have slightly different preferences. Um, so I can go to um, Chat GPT now, and it will give recommendations for an itinerary without necessarily knowing my personal preferences. So it's quite generalized, unless I unless I manually prompt that in. But then the problem is two problems. The, the first one is that um, it's only doing that based on open web data. And it would be much easier if it was able to outsource those specific tasks to specialist agents in a marketplace of agents where developers were able to create an agent for very, very uh, particular or niche subject, which could be Pokemon in the case of my child or um, a particular form of kind of Japanese art history um, in, in, in my case. And therefore, it could outsource that as, as one task ultimately a marketplace of specialist agents would then break it down and come back with recommendations and be rewarded through microtransactions um, if we were to kind of go ahead with them. They might sponsor those uh, or subsidize those tasks through some kind of ad model. But then the final thing is we really need that AI to have um, agency. So in aggregate, I'm asking a question to my sovereign AI. It is able to give um, highly specialized answers by outsourcing those tasks. So there's a, there's a feeling of generalized intelligence, even though that doesn't reside in one AI, it resides in the kind of collective knowledge of these trillions of specialist agents um, that are otherwise perhaps dumb outside of their specialism. Um, but then finally, you need agency. You need um, to complete the task. So rather than give a recommendation, you need my sovereign agent to then complete that task. It needs to um, book the flights. It needs to book the hotel. It needs to buy the tickets to the theme park, to the art gallery, based upon my preferences. Let's say um, one of us has disability or we have dietary requirements. It will know that in advance because it's my sovereign AI. Um, and it will book them accordingly. Um, and so for that, it needs economic agency. Um, and currently, the only thing that I can think of that can allow agents, if you think of them as smart contracts, uh, hopefully, you know, with greater levels of intelligence, um, they can carry out, complete those transactions, including microtransactions on, on my behalf using cryptocurrency. And therefore, it has economic agency, not just agency, but economic agency. And so, again, Web3 is uh, a perfect kind of fit for that. Now, to kind of close off on that, thought as we come up on the hour not only will it have agency but it will be dynamic and so coming back to the travel example let's say something uh, changes I, I miss the flight and therefore everything that's been booked i'm going to be a day late two days late um if you imagine that everything that got booked in in that um in that itinerary had its own representative agent including the hotel room it would know it would be updated that i'm not going to be able to make it on that first night and it would potentially let itself out uh, for that particular night and so it allows for dynamic marketplaces to solve for supply and demand and improve efficiency across um, most use cases and experiences so um, huge kind of potential there so these are just some examples to kind of wrap up we've kind of gone through it quite a clip some examples of how we believe innovations, individual innovations or innovations in combination um, can uh, bring great promise for the open metaverse um, and 
uh, in some cases, directly address some of the challenges um, that we highlighted in the first part of the paper, which are kind of these these threats to the open metaverse. So, uh, in conclusion, I'd, I'd really recommend that you you read the paper in full. Um, we've also done an audio recording, so you can kind of listen to it in the background if if you don't have time to read it. Um, we'd love your feedback. It's not meant to be a complete thing. It's really meant to be a um, kind of checklist of things for founders primarily to think about when they are making daily decisions um, for their particular startups. Because we can talk about all the theory, principles, philosophies of the open metaverse, but ultimately the open metaverse is is going to be built by the kind of aggregate micro decisions of founders in their day-to-day um, as they effectively try to build products, businesses that scale and touch the lives of millions, billions of people um, that are scalable, affordable, and ideally at a superior UX. And we all know that that brings challenges um, and sometimes requires shortcuts or compromises in kind of delivering a full-fat Web3. And that's something we refer to in the paper as Web 2.5. It's something that we stress um, whilst we hope it's transitory, could potentially become permanent if we don't watch out for those decisions and, and think through the kind of first, second, third order uh, effects and consequences. So um, thanks all for joining. This will be uh, recorded um, and made available on the Twitter account. Um, please do, if you haven't heard the first um, part of this that we recorded over a week ago, back, go back to that. But as I said, really, we wanted this to serve as a kind of uh, a jumping off point into the overall paper. If you are a founder working on any of the themes that we just talked about, we'd love to speak to you. Um, we are investing actively investing in all of these themes through our accelerator. By now, we are the world's largest, uh, most active Web3 investor by deals. Um, we're accelerating a couple of hundred Web3 founders every year from thousands of applications, um, and we'd love to work with you. So thanks so much for your time. Please do leave comments, feedback. Um, we'd love to hear from you and collect your opinions. Martin, is there anything else that we'd like to say before we close off? Uh, no, just that if you want to um, check out the thesis for yourself, um, you can check it out at outlieradventures.io forward slash atlas forward slash open metaverse thesis. Um, the audio recording is also available on our um, Spotify uh, or Apple Podcasts uh, or anywhere you get your podcasts as part of the Metaverse Podcast. Um, and feel free to engage with us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, all social media. Um, sign up to a newsletter. Um, if you want to stay in the loop, we'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.